Welcome to the Extra Credits, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Today we're talking about HBO's The Last of Us, episode two. Yes. Which is called Infected. Yes. And I never know the episode name, so I'm glad you always start it with that. Okay. The, this one is straight to the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're back. We're excited to cover the show for HBO, and we're going to continue keeping our promise to not watch ahead with the screeners we have so we can have an authentic reaction with all of the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, so if it's your first time listening, go back and listen to our thoughts on episode one. Mm-hmm. We loved it. Yep. And we usually cover movies on this podcast if you're a new listener, but I'm excited to keep watching this post-apocalyptic, infected world of The Last of Us. <laughs> what did you uh, think about episode two? I liked it. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously really hard to live up to the first episode, and I almost wish we got to spend more time in the QZ, but... I think episode two was really focused on character building, developing their motivations, kind of like setting up the rules of this world. Yes. Ex- so, yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I kind of didn't love it the first time we watched it. We watched it a few times now. And it was considerably shorter. I That might've been why, but there was something about it that felt like I, I needed something more because episode one was so strong. Uh, but before we get too deep into episode two, though, I, we should probably talk about episode one. Do you want to recap that really quick? Yeah, let's see how I do and what stuck with me since I haven't played the video game and Trey has. Right. So in episode one, we opened with a 1968 talk show that foreshadows that we're all going to die. (laughs) And when our world gets warmer, this fungi is going to grow in our bodies and take over our minds. And that wasn't in the video game, right? Uh, No, that was not. And then that scene introduces this idea that one you know, the threat in The Last of Us is actually worse than the viral pandemic that we're currently in. You know, they were trying to set up stakes, especially about a pandemic show that we're watching right now in 2023. Mm -hmm. And two, I think it was Craig Mazin, the show writer who said that he wanted to introduce a societal observation lens at the first episode to show that scientists know that pandemics will happen just throughout history. And we often pretend as a society that nothing's going to happen. Yeah. As we know, there are even aspects of denial throughout an actual pandemic. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it was very real for sure. Then we jumped to 2003, Texas. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the story before episode one. I actually thought this was more of a zombie, you know, show. Like apocalypse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that we were going to be here the whole time in this show with Joel, Sarah, and Tommy. But nope. Sarah tragically dies after a sick VFX plane crash. Oh, it's killer. Yeah. Seeing Sarah die in two different mediums now is a lot. Yeah. Hard to, hard to come back in episode two. It's a hard thing to top. Mm -hmm. And then we jump again, 20 years into the future, 2023, Boston. Mm -hmm. We meet a hardened Joel, an oppressive federal government with the fireflies who are like the rebel alliance. Sure. In this world. Yeah. Uh, and an immune Ellie who Tess and Joel now need to get to the state building. Um, <laughs> not because Joel cares. Okay. <laughs> Joel's heart is stone now, but because he needs a battery to get to his brother, Tommy in Wyoming. Joel is a rock for sure. Yeah. In, in many ways <laughs> that we're going to be talking about throughout the season. So that was a fun episode. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was terrifying. It was sad. It was exciting. I am fearful that we'll never live up to the heights of episode one throughout the season because it was that good. So let's dive into episode two. Why are you so important? Somewhere out west. I think what really impressed them was the fact that I didn't turn into a monster. We try to keep you alive. They're working on a cure. I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves. You haven't seen the world. So you don't know. You're not immune from being ripped apart. Don't tell anyone about your condition. You know it's out there. You're not gonna scare us. Scared him? So first, let's start with the cold open. What did you think about it? I liked it. I'm not a huge cold open guy, okay. but these uh, work for me so far, especially because they have a real purpose and the creators are very methodical in how they are making these intros. Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin are the showrunners and they've said these cold opens will 
help establish context for the story and present these kind of like ethical questions for the viewers Mm -hmm. that are effective. And that is smart because if you listen to our pod on the video game, The Last of Us is filled with these like successful and sometimes unsuccessful ethical dilemmas. And to me, there are even some like major ideas in the story that aren't fully developed and even presented a lot of issues in the part one video game, which is why the part two game is necessary. And I'm still playing through that right now, which is a wild experience that I have not been able to talk to Kelsey about. Just <laughs> yeah, friends. Because... I will not be able to listen to that podcast episode until I'm done with the whole show. I'm ex- will you play the video game? I, if you like the show, I don't know that I can commit to that. Like okay. it's a lot of hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a maybe for me. Okay. Well in part two, they are literally trying to address past issues of the first game. So I okay. think these cold openings of the show were really made to try and fix some issues from the part one game story, which is smart if that's what they're doing. Okay. So in the show, I think why these openings work for me ultimately is because they sort of act as like a vehicle for questions and ideas for the viewer because we're jumping into this episode with not a lot of context. And so to make this effective television, we kind of need to be strapped in for an epic experience. And I think starting with the opening of episode one, it was good at that. It addressed a few things. To me, the best part of that first opening was the decision to highlight the irony of how every society is self-aware of its potential collapse. Like in the first open we see in 1968, there are these scientists that you were talking about on live television telling you how civilization can fall, kind of warning people about global warming and illustrating that we knowingly create our own demise. Mm -hmm. And then eventually when this collapse happens, whether it be like financial or an environmental issue, history shows us that we act like we didn't know any better or we live in this like aggressive state of denial. So that episode one cold open was just very good in getting epidemiologists to kind of explain how humans can cause intense global warming and how that can expedite a collapse caused by this mutated fungi, which, you know, for the viewer, first time viewer, especially contextualizes this dystopian nightmare the show takes place in, but it also confronts the viewer about their own role in trying maybe not to mitigate the spread of our own virus in our literal pandemic, or at least at the very least, illustrate what we've already seen around us, which is people not maybe caring too much about others. Yeah. There isn't a lot of collective interest in the pandemic that we saw, which is kind of meta in that way. I did feel like it was sometimes bordering on being a little emotionally manipulative considering where we are today. Yeah, agreed. I think also last time we talked about this episode, we were talking about how it almost could be to explain e i guess you know for yeah. for the world and too much exposition yeah like i maybe i wanted minutes. to figure out like what the the fungus or you know what was happening with the cordyceps and the infected mm-hmm. but i do think especially having this second cold open that context and that idea of knowing these these issues or knowing that this is going to happen like for a long time yeah and seeing the second cold open really hit for me and i i thought it was successful too well i think in it's clear after seeing episode two's cold open i wasn't sure they're going to do every episode like this now i think it's confirmed that there's going to be like an evolution of an idea or a question presented in each one yeah so i think you know right from the jump in the intro for episode two it's clear the show knows the viewer is now in this morally gray world they are ready to kind of like enter into these like this, these murky questions that are going to be asked. And the opening interrogates the ways people justify being complicit in the death of others, I think, which is pretty heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. So we start off in 2003, I believe, in Jakarta, Indonesia, two days before the onset of the cordyceps pandemic in Austin, Texas. Right. It was the 24th, which in 2003, we open on the 26th last episode. Okay. Yeah. So that intro kind of reminded me of when Amy Adams is like picked up by the military and government and arrival. Oh yeah. So I thought that was cool. And then also Soderbergh's contagion, I think you said at one point. So we're introduced to this professor who has been asked by the military to inspect a dead body in the Indonesian government lab or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) And that's kind of like the top five worst things that can happen to you at lunch is like (laughs) just this random military being like, we need you for this like epically sad thing. Uh, and then there's like in this incredibly eerie score building as the professor is getting closer and closer to this lab. Did you notice that? Like the way it was building, especially when she walked in to see the dead body, it started taking off. I was like, oh, wow, this is, I wish this was in a theater. This Yeah. Moment. Yeah. And I liked how they had the opening shot too. Like there are these insert shots of people going about their day, paying for their meal. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the building, there's also insert shots of the military officer's quick footsteps and the professor 
has to like actively try to keep up with their pace. Yeah. And we also pass a few like 10 foot posters in the lobby and one says SARS on it. And I didn't catch what it actually said. Like maybe it was listing symptoms. Interesting. But again, we get this comparison of the fungi and then the viral respiratory disease which will be important when we get into the next few scenes of this cold open. Yeah, there's a lot of quick edits in these intros, I've noticed, um, especially at the beginning of this episode too, which is interesting. I think there's a different director. I think Druckmann did this one, and I think Mazin did the past one. And there's a lot of time spent on these sets, which we're going to talk about today. But I love that you picked those things out because I didn't even notice that. I think the sets maybe have been the best part of both episodes. Mm -hmm. So I love when the background is so heavily uh, methodically created. So as the professor continues to kind of investigate this body, they find a bite on this person's ankle, which is really gross because it looks like it's filled with pus, or I guess we find out it's fungus. Yeah. And then the professor opens this person's mouth. And I was convinced, like no doubt in my mind, because this wasn't in the video game, but for some reason I was just like, this is going to happen, that the infected person was going to wake up and bite the professor's fingers off. Oh, for sure. I thought she was dead. Like <laughs> that's where we were going. Yeah. And so I, I guess I've just seen too much zombie stuff, Right. but yeah. it, it didn't happen. And instead we cut to a- It's like a World War Z scene or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Resident Evil. But something even more disturbing happens, which is that we have a conversation between the professor and this like military general. And this is where we learn that the cordyceps traveled through a flower plant and the dead person in the lab was infected at this plant and bit several people who the military then decided to murder. And we also learn that there are up to 14 workers from the plant who are still missing. Mm -hmm. So now we all know, like the audience knows, that the fungus is being spread throughout flower, which gives context to the previous episode of why the old woman next door to Sarah starts turning into an infected without being bitten. Because oh, okay. That's how it's spreading for, through the grain and flour factory. Yeah. So I guess we're supposed to be led to believe that it was the oatmeal raisin cookies. Oh, wow. Yeah. If Sarah had a, an Which oatmeal raisin cookie. is ridiculous <laughs> because team oatmeal raisin unite. I'm, wait, wait. No, she was infected before they were making the oatmeal raisin cookies. So it might have Remember been the biscuits the, that the morning. The dog. Yeah. Because they were eating something that morning and then Joel the made a knew. joke. Yeah. So anyways, it's going through flour, <laughs> I guess. And I guess it's also a good thing we don't eat bread in this house. So no cordyceps here. <laughs> yeah. Once it gets to almond flour, though, we're done. Oh, we're completely done. <laughs> we're giving done. too much information about our eating habits to the listeners. Like, yeah, I'm allergic to bread. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a whole thing. It sucks. Okay. Yeah. Well, gluten-free cookies are good if you add lots of butter and sugar, I guess. Yeah. You have to cook them longer. That's like the trick. Are you, are you telling me right now that I've cooked them longer? I'm telling or are you the telling listeners. listeners? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Just to be clear. <laughs> All right. So the government tells the professor they brought her there to help prevent the spread of the fungus. And she explains how she's been studying this fungi her whole life and says there is no medicine or vaccine. And then she tells the general something pretty wild, which is to bomb the city and everyone in it. Yeah. And from my time with the story in the game, these are the kind of ethical dilemmas this show is built on. And this specific idea to kill or be killed by the professor parallels pretty easily to the first episode's ethical issues as well. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we Your had extra like credit from last time. Yeah. We had Joel's rationale to not helping that family on the highway was kind of being the same rationale the soldier used when being ordered to protect his country and kill Joel and his daughter. I would go back and listen to our thoughts on that episode if you're interested, because it is complicated. So again, I am a little worried because the show might not correct these either or fallacies from the game that I've talked a lot about on the podcast. Even though later in the episode when Tess, Joel, and Ellie are in Boston, I believe Tess notes that the U.S. tried bombing major cities like Boston. Yeah, she does. And it mostly didn't work, she mm -hmm. said. Yeah. And I'm not sure that was like a strong enough seed planted. So I'm just kind of allergic to any story that presents a social or political argument, which this story definitely does, that uses like these weird false ethical dilemmas to justify terrible decisions. But we'll see where the show takes us. It, it's very difficult to know if Druckmann, the game creator, and now the showrunner, the writer of both, is reflecting the audience's ignorance through the characters in the show or if he's actually making like a moral argument. Hmm, okay. and, and I guess I should say too, to, I get for any kind of like counterpoints or audience, people who are like really invested in the story, Druckmann and Mazin have been very clear on what the driving question of season one is, which is that they want to investigate the unconditional love a parent feels for a child. And that feels very uncomplicated, but the way they've explained it does sound complicated because they want to do that through constructing the story through their relationships to make viewers feel the wonderful and horrific things that can happen because of love, which 
to me was like a weird definition of love when I heard them say that, even if I understand what they're trying to say. Sure. But ultimately, this definition of love is what drew Chernobyl's Craig Mazin to the story and why he wanted to adapt it on HBO. He's like heavily invested in The Last of Us as a complicated love story. He said that the major theme that got him to play the game was that love conquers all. And in his words, he said that idea can be problematic. And he said that love is this like primal instinct and it can lead to intense fear and extreme behavior like violence and tribalism, racism, xenophobia. And he said you can find love in all those terrible issues. So that means that love isn't always good. And they made sure that the characters in the story are playing through these difficult dynamics of love. But I don't know, because that's like a really weird reading of the story to me. I understand what they're saying, but personally, I think it sounds like the story is conflating love with insecurity as somebody who's played the whole video game. And if you told me insecurity is at the root of beautiful and destructive acts, like the concept of protecting a child or your family and, all, and any, by any means, I'd buy into that more because it would probably be more dark instead of trying to like sympathize with people who do terrible things like Joel, which is why the game is complicated. So there was this like subtle, weird political messaging of the story when I played the video game and I'm starting to like feel hints of that in the show, which sucks because I am heavily invested in The Last of Us. Obviously, we're doing a podcast on it and we're doing it all season long. And there's a part of me that like really believes that the writers are self-aware that the story really is built to kind of reflect a privilege and selfishness of the player and viewer. Yeah, I guess it just, I mean, I not having played the video game, it just matters if it, that's maybe clear. Like we don't, yeah. we don't really like explicit, you know, stories where, where the characters are explaining things to us. But if it's like responsibly told, you're saying. Well, if there's a lot of like human stakes involved in a message of a huge story like this that has hundreds of millions of dollars invested in it and millions of people watching it, I mean, it has a responsibility. Like yeah, if it, but you're it. saying that it, you're hoping that on in the actual show that the questions that are being asked are more clear instead of this murky idea where someone could walk away and say, oh yeah, it was a good idea to like bomb the whole city. Yeah, exactly. And I think the show kind of gets off on not being clear because it gets to just be like, I'm a dystopian show. I don't have any like actual like uh, responsibility to like cultural issues. But sure. if the show does end up kind of being something more and trying to fix some of those mistakes from the game, I think it'll be an incredible experience watching this. I think that dystopian stories can be successful if they acknowledge that selfishness isn't inherent and that our ego is like a product of how we're socialized. Mm -hmm. And that's why dystopian stories are incredible devices to ask really tough questions. But I'm not sure how deep and thoughtful the questions in the show are so far. So again, I'm a little worried. I don't want to, I don't like fear monger people about whether the show is actually doing a good job intellectually because it's ultimately just a an infection show, but yeah. it is presenting serious questions. One thing that worried me already in the cold open was that the bomb logic the professor used in Jakarta was basically the way every powerful person or entity justifies their destructive acts, like some real Hiroshima World War II vibes in that moment. So we'll see what happens in future cold opens because this story can possibly teeter on being an apologist story for humans being inherently evil. And I'm hoping it's just like some real Hobbes versus Rousseau philosophy class BS going on and that the story is way more of an intellectual exercise than actually having like a morally bankrupt argument because that would be sad. Uh, yeah. So let's get into episode two because I don't want to stay too much on this cold open because it's really only the first few minutes of the show. What did you like about this episode? So episode two, I liked the opening where we have Ellie sleeping in a hair salon I think is we, that what that was? A hair salon? Yeah, yeah. There was um at first I thought it was a movie theater because we had the seats. something that well, no, not the seats. The seats is what told me it was the hair salon, actually. Oh. The uh, we had that kind of booth at the front where I was like, oh, is that like a movie ticket booth? And then we have the different posters. But then when it showed like a close-up of Tess, I saw the hair salon. I don't know what it's called, the uh like bowl that they put over someone's Listeners, head. Listeners, Kelsey's <laughs> hand is on top of her head right now. <laughs> Um, this is a not a visual medium. Whatever that is called, you can obviously tell like it's a salon by the you know chairs. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I like that we get a lot of kind of cultural artifacts in this episode, similar to other post-apocalypse shows that make us reflect on like how much of a system and our behaviors are kind of based on our circumstances. Like right. later on in the episode, 
we have a, a man who is dead wearing a, a hat with an American flag still intact. And the characters are surrounded by heads of, you know, these presidents and we're in a hotel later on, on a, and also on a barren highway later on where we see a toy that is like dirty and, and abandoned. It was like a little giraffe toy. Okay. And that's always just something that's a staple of dystopian shows that I, I really enjoy. That's it's a like great a, catch about the presidents. I did not pick that up. Yeah. And at the beginning of this episode, we're also introduced to this conflict that Tess and Joel basically go back and forth with throughout this whole episode. Mm -hmm. While I think at the beginning of the episode, Tess is still on board to use Ellie to get the car battery. Right. As Tess increasingly realizes that Ellie is probably immune, she says to Joel, she made it through the night, like as a, a surprise. Mm -hmm. And Tess starts to subtly voice that she and Joel probably need to get Ellie to where she needs to go because she could be a help to finding the cure. Right. And also we start to get the the idea that Tess also doesn't want to see Ellie killed. Yeah. I mean, I liked that dynamic. I liked seeing Tess and Ellie kind of build a relationship together at the end of this episode. Yeah, that's, why that's I was, true. They're like walking on the highway, talking to each other. Yeah. That's why I was surprised ultimately what happens at the end, but we'll get to it. Yeah. And so where Tess is saying, you know, we should probably help Ellie out, Joel is consistently communicating, not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, for example, when, yeah, Tess is, says, you know, if we take her back to the QZ, they'll shoot her when they see that she tests red, even though she's immune. Mm -hmm. And Joel says something like, better them than us. You know, like he's basically saying Ellie's a liability. The medical base out West is a false hope and it's everyone for themselves. So she, he, I think he says something literally like, you need to stop acting like this kid has some sort of life in front of her, which comes back at the end of this episode. How do you feel about Joel as somebody who hasn't played the game? Like as a player, I am immediately connected to him in the game because you play as him, but I feel distant a little bit from his character as a viewer, even though Pedro Pascal is doing a great job. I feel closer to Ellie, which is fine because Bella Ramsey's a great actor and has hilarious comedic timing. So I'm invested in her and their dynamic. But what do you think about Joel so far? Because he is the kind of main character. Yeah, well, I, I think I want to start with Ellie and then I'll talk about okay. Joel because there are a lot of really funny moments in this episode. Like when Ellie says, can I have a gun? And Joel and Tess in <laughs> unison are like, no. Yeah. And she's like, all right, Jesus, I'll just throw a sandwich at them then. It's just great timing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also along the way, uh, Tess is like, okay, the long way or the word dead way. And she says, well, based on that limited information, <laughs> let's take the long way. Yeah. And also those hotel scenes were funny where, you know, she can't swim, we learn, and she doesn't realize it's shallow water. And she's like, mm -hmm. don't know how I'm supposed to know that. Yeah. <laughs> she reminds me so much of Tom Holland's comedic timing in those moments. And I believe she's British. So that's an odd coincidence. Oh, interesting. I wonder okay. if there's some kind of school they attended, but they, they, <laughs> they have some interesting physical comedic timing that reminds me of one another. Yeah. And then just the last one at the hotel, right? She's playing like real life at this concierge desk asking for a suite. And Joel's like, you're a weird kid. And she's like, you're a weird kid. That was funny, but I have a question. <laughs> yeah. How does she know what a concierge desk is? And like, how does she know to like ring that bell? Like, she said she's read books. I don't know what the she's cultural significance of QZ. ringing that bell though. Like, does she watch She can't watch movies. There's no electricity. Right. So That's like, true. what does she know about ring? Like when she does ding, 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 like waiting for someone to come, I'm like, you yeah, like, what do you I, I thought something similar, but she did say books. I don't I don't know. It's Maybe. not a very good school, apparently. <laughs> yeah, there were some moments, though, where I was like, dude, if I were traveling with this kid, we'd need to set some like ground rules. All right. Like, yeah. Joel First asks, of all, give me that sandwich. That's number one. <laughs> yeah, that's mine now. <laughs> yeah, they're eating that like totally dried out jerky. It's like yeah. hard. Yeah. And uh, there was one scene where Joel asks Ellie like where she learned to flip her knife while they're waiting for Tess to, you know, climb through that like fallen down structure. Mm -hmm. And she's like the circus. And yeah. I was like, bro, like, no, like uh, uncalled for. That is a 14 year old com <laughs> comedy though. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I know she's captured actually and like <laughs> by these people. So she's being snarky for that reason. But I think it was also really interesting that in this episode, there are a few scenes that paralleled uh, real life, I think, because we are in a pandemic right mm -hmm. now and um, where I was thinking about like some kids reactions to the pandemic uh, when we were watching this episode of The Last of Us, like in schools at, tor towards the time where we were going back to school and okay, like not online. A year and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were a lot of kids who were 
just acting irresponsible and um you know we're in high schools but every day like people were pretending to cough on each other Mm -hmm. and like purposely doing things that uh they think were you know being defiant in a funny way and yeah uh, because collectively the world was treating the pandemic like a political issue and so we have like children who are literally memeing the stakes of death uh with like teachers in the room who are who could be are forced to work in that scenario yeah, yeah. and also who could yeah. be at high risk and yeah. or have family members at high risk and i i was just reminded of that when she kind of faked the twitching um as, of the infected at the very beginning of the episode right. and tess turns to her and says don't really seriously like, like we don't know how tess's family was probably yeah, yeah like like saying she was basically saying to ellie like you don't understand the stakes of what you're doing and a lot of people are probably like okay you're taking it too serious but i think seeing that parallel was interesting and i think it's probably something that a lot of people don't no, no, I'm sure we, like, on my first reaction watching that, I laughed. My second reaction watching the episode a second time, I had that, that same thought. And I think that will be a surprise to some listeners because not everyone's a teacher. It gets to be, like, in high school classrooms during a pandemic. That was a very weird thing. So, obviously, not all kids are, are doing right, what Kelsey's yeah. talking about. But it was enough students to be alarmed. And a part of me is now desensitized to how Ellie acted in that moment. So I just ultimately came away thinking like, okay, Ramsey's a funny physical performer, but yeah, the, the layers there are there if you want to pick on them. I'm not sure if that was intended in the Yeah, writing, I don't think it was intended, but I was but just thinking about it because of the layers that have already been put in the show. Like, yeah. And again, it goes back to a more societal reading, not like blaming an individual. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah. Especially with the first scene that we get in the first cold open in episode one where it pans to like the people in the audience's faces. Yes. And I, I just think that's interesting. But yeah. anyways, I don't really know about Joel to answer your first question. Okay. Besides just the empty, stoic protector character that he's playing right now, that we're seeing right now. Okay. And it seems like we are getting characterizations through small moments with him. Like he doesn't like to share things about himself. And I I don't even know if he thinks about his identity anymore. Uh, You know, he says like pass, pass. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like that's what his consciousness like goes at. Like anytime he's like thinking about himself, he's like pass Pass, in his head. (laughs) (laughs) But we have these smaller moments when he helps Ellie up in the hotel and quickly lets go of her hand, which at first, you know, we know he has a broken hand, but on second watch, I was like, oh, is he rejecting physical connection? (laughs) And um, it also seems like, Ellie is kind of bringing him back to life uh, or at least like making him reflect a little bit when she's in the hotel with him. She asks him, is it hard to kill infected people knowing that they had a life before? And what about that guy that you just punched to death last night? And uh, after Joel and Tess save Ellie, that like that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that he said sometimes because it was it was a, a moment of actual emotion. And I was interested of that because in the game you actually don't get Joel showing any emotion for at least four hours of gameplay. Okay. (laughs) So for it to be like an hour and a half into the whole season, I was like, Oh, it's impressive. Yeah. And we have that moment too, right. Where he looks at his watch and thinks of Sarah Mm -hmm. at when uh, they leave the museum. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what is up with him yet. And I don't like really connect with him yet. Besides the fact that I think, He's going to protect Ellie um, after this like tragic test death that we'll talk about later. But okay, I, I don't really know like how I feel about him. I don't feel super connected to him. Um, okay, well, it's not like interested. you're. I'll say this: it's not like you're supposed to. I'm not like trying to step on anything or spoil anything. Uh, but I have found it to be uh, w- one of the only few issues of the show so far, which is that like we just had a, a major character of the first two episodes die. And we don't really care about the only person that she knows who is Joel. Yeah. So his reaction to her death, while sad and also a little confusing, I'm sure to people who haven't played the games, um, was interesting. I don't know if anybody was really probably impacted by it. I'm going to talk later a little bit about that. Yeah. And uh, Pedro Pascal is like doing an amazing job. Like I love him in this role, but Mm -hmm. for the character, since we are getting so little, it is honestly hard for me because we've been inundated with pandemic and apocalypse zombie whatever infected content to yeah. not compare to my beloved rick yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean so, andrew lincoln yeah so yeah. it is tough um anyway I, i'll see how it how he develops but okay. okay before we get to tess and the ending 
uh, I think we should talk about like the rules that we learn. So I know that you maybe new rules in the video game as they're evolving, but I feel like this episode particularly, we were learning a, a lot about how this new world functions and it's how so interesting the infected functions. that you say rules because I don't think, I guess I'm so like I played so many video games where the rules are you you get used to them and adjust to them very quickly like, mm-hmm. or you die and you restart <laughs> the game. And if you didn't save, you're screwed, which is this kind of video game, by the way. Like if you don't save things in the first game, at least you do have to start again, where like 30 minutes back, you know what I mean? It sucks. I definitely can't commit to that game. Uh, then. <laughs> the second game has been easier with autosave, but the first game I remember being like a really tough experience. Anyways, I like that you said about rules because the second episode makes more sense to me now. As soon as you said rules when we were done with it the first time, I was like, oh, okay. They're setting the groundwork for how this world works. That's a good call. Yeah. And I also think they're trying to set up stakes for the rest of the season because once we know these rules, then we know what the dangers are. Yeah. Because at this point, we might feel like Ellie's safe. I found myself actually when Tess says to her, uh, you know, you you might be immune, but you're not immune to being ripped apart. Love I was that. like, Oh yeah. I thought Ellie was safe. I realized that I was thinking that. Yeah. I don't even know if that's something they address in the game because I don't remember picking up on that until like halfway through being like, Oh, Ellie might get brutally murdered, in this game. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep saying she's immune. So I'm like, she's safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we also learned that the infected are all connected, right? Mm-hmm. Like that there's fungi that grows underground and some of the fibers stretch over a mile. So if you step on one patch of cordyceps in one place, it could draw other infected to your location. So there are spores in the game like that the infect infected people release. Oh, interesting. Uh, but you have to like put a mask on. Okay. And so, in, so it is respiratory also in the game? Yes. And mm-hmm. they chose to use this network of fungi instead. And I honestly thought it was kind of kitschy and like a little whack because I, it's not that I was like excited uh, for the spores, but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this will add a layer of tension when, when they're like walking in like down a road and they step on a, a fungi vine or whatever. Uh, but I wasn't like heavily invested in the spores because you would like have to put on a mask and be stuck in some like fucking basement fighting off infected zombies. And it was not very fun to me, at least I liked being uh, like where the light was. <laughs> oh, in the game. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm kind of curious to like what they're going to do. Um, I guess structurally now with these uh, fungi vines that are all across these communities across the United States. Like I, uh, I think it's smart, like acting wise, because you don't have to hide the, well, yeah, I was just going to say like, it would be tough to shoot uh, what the characters emotions are, especially since it sounds like this or feels like this story is going to be driven off of the the relationship between characters. So to shoot them in a mask, I feel like you have to change the rules for the show. I, I agree. That's, that is, it seems kind of obvious that you, they can't put masks on them. It just seemed something corny to me about seeing the vines move on the ground and gotcha. like the, the characters, like the, they almost look like skeletons coming to life in Hocus Pocus when they were coming up. I was like, I don't know if I'm like into this. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I didn't really think much about it besides I was like, oh, okay, like this is what's happening. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I'll buy in. Um, but yeah, there were, I guess there were some pieces where it did feel like an explaining episode, but I mean, I, I don't want to be too harsh. Like I was still in it. We so. got a good sequence. Like I love the museum. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to the museum where we learn that the fungi, when it's dried out, that means that the, the infected are dead inside. Okay. Which I didn't know. I guess they can live for what Joel said, two months to 20 years. So yeah, I don't think there's a time span. He, he just said they could live two months to 20 years. So for all we know, they could live forever. Right. And then we also learn that they can't see, but they can hear. And I love when Joel says like, from this point, we're silent. Nice. Not quiet. <laughs> silent. I'll turn the volume up for that one. <laughs> I was wondering how many times it took. I was just wondering about the technical aspects of like recording him whispering because mm-hmm. it was just a great whisper from our guy. <laughs> um, Do you think that was like important information he should have shared with Ellie before yeah, they went upstairs? Because well, she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Then he had to say it with her, say it to her without saying it out loud. He had yeah. to mouth it. And I, the first time we watched it, I was like, what did he say? I literally asked you. I was like, yeah. can they see? Can they hear? I didn't yeah, yeah. know what he said. So. That's so funny. And I, and I, I was confused too. Cause I was like, can they see, can they hear? And I was like thinking about the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then I also really like the colorful fungi growing out of the dead bodies. Oh it my was God. just really the cool The practical visually. work is fantastic. Yeah. In our last podcast, we talked about how it reminded us of Annihilation, which yeah. I learned, uh, you know, in the prep for this that Alex Garland actually played The Last of Us and that was an inspiration for him. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. There was one really cool image of a, a woman with the fungi growing out of her eyes and head as they climb the stairs. Yeah, it's great makeup. The visual effects team, a little bit on that, it too, did really well. And the practical work is fantastic. Everything about everyone who is working on this show outside of the creators is doing like an incredible job. Not that the creators aren't, but I've already kind of voiced concerns about the writing. But like, the show looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you think about the scene where they were trapped and we have these two infected? Like, okay, yeah. I thought the infected 2.0, uh, you know, people with the brains on the outside were cool looking, but like, was that how they looked in the game? Were they like raptors? <laughs> like they seemed like in the scene? <laughs> um, I don't want to spoil anything, but okay. there, there are evolutions of the infected, which I guess you can kind of pick up. From okay. Just seeing yeah. Them. There are different types. So, I guess you've met two different kinds. Uh, the runners in the beginning and the first episode are the kind of like first tier of infected. Okay. And then the clickers who are the, ra- the raptor ones okay. that you're talking about <laughs> are the third tier, I believe. They make this like literal clicking sound and have this mutated face that felt like a Stranger Things visual artist was like inspired by in 2013 or something. Oh yeah, like the, a Demogorgon. I guess the fungus, like in real life, the cordyceps fungus makes insects it takes over in real life, like open up and blossom out of itself. So the face is like opening up in a really cool detail and it's very scary looking. Mm-hmm. But ultimately there were like too many moments in that scene for me where I just like saw two dudes running around <laughs> yeah. with like things on their heads. And I did like how their movement was similar to the game with the clickers. Like in both the game and the show, the clickers act like they are walking away from you, but then they do this quick turnaround thing that is yeah. frightening. And in the game, if they get a hold of you, like you're dead, like you can't okay. do anything. So you have to like stealth kill them or use your bullets or other weapons. So I'm kind of like in and out on the clickers and just this one introduction to them. I'm like way more interested in the politics of the factions that we meet instead of the infected at the beginning of the show and probably throughout the whole game. That's true too, which I know is not a shared feeling among the gaming community. There are a lot of people who love the different evolutions of the infected and want to are interested in how they're different. But to me, that's just like not my thing. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, too, in the first episode, we talked about how I I specifically, and I think you agree, want to see our dystopian stories pushing on these moral dilemmas and see the choices that characters make as a reflection point for society. Like, that's where I think things are most interesting. Yeah, that'll um, happen for sure. Yeah. And I'm more out on like the zombie eating scenes. This, though, I did feel like added a, a sense of like danger where I it would have been missing or slow if the episode didn't have it. So ultimately I was in on the scene because there was a sense of danger there. And I, I didn't know maybe if Tess would die here. Okay. Uh, but ultimately I think what you were saying about the two dudes running around, I was noticing too a little bit because I was like, wait, like does getting bit make you grow 10 inches? <laughs> like we have these guys who are like six, five yeah. like, wearing the same outfits running around. I was like, did the Winklevoss twins like stray <laughs> from Harvard yard to get bit by like bit at the Bostonian museum? I'm six, five and there's two of me. <laughs> I'm also a cannibal. Just Tyler and cam coming to the, to the museum after, uh, you know, rowing practice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. I, was starting to get the idea that we'd see different evolved forms of the infected even before the scene, just Mm -hmm. based on the look that Tess gave Joel when they were walking on the highway. And Ellie was talking about the rumors she's heard at school about the infected exploding like spores on you or the ones with split open heads that can see in the dark, like bats. Again, another moment where I'm like, do you want to explain something to Ellie? Cause it seems like you're withholding information for whatever reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know why they would need to withhold it. Um, They ultimately need her alive to get whatever they want. So, uh, but all right, that brings us to, the pretty sad ending. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. So on the last podcast, I had a prediction that I, or I just said a hope that they didn't kill Tess. Yeah. Uh, because who else is going to check Joel, you know, or or serve as a character to show the different paths of decisions and motivation? Did you know she was going to die this quickly? Like, did that no. enter your mind? Because at least you had a thought. That's why you said it on the last episode. Yeah. You were assuming that she would die eventually. But I just didn't think they'd do it this quickly. And yeah. 
Um, it was kind of tragic. I mean, we, we don't know Tess and actually from what we do know, like she might not be a good person (laughs) or just at least has made bad choices. And, uh, but I think it's just that kind of human fear and that coming to terms with death in her performance that got me. Yeah. And Anna Torv is a a great performer. Yeah. Loved her in Mindhunter. Do you remember her in Mindhunter? We didn't talk about that last episode. Oh God. We got to rewatch that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shout out my Fincher heads. We love that show. Yeah. And so when we get to the state house, agreed though, uh, but all of the fireflies are dead in the circle with all of their resources there. And that was very video game to me. I was like, pick up the new gun, get the grenades. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but we learned that Tess is infected there and Joel uh, just shot and infected that alerts others across the city. So they're going to be here in a few minutes. Although I guess I'm still unclear on how fast the infected are, like what their mile time is. They got there pretty <laughs> quick. So they're fast. But ultimately it's Ellie who recognizes that Tess was bit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because Tess starts being explicitly hopeful and angry. And she says, you know, our luck had to run out sooner or later. And, and all we, the blood is like draining through her face. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we get this intense closing with Tess where she tells Joel like, this is your time to make things right. And you need to get Ellie to, I wasn't clear who she said, like Bill and Frank's yes. Mill and Frank's. I don't know. It's Bill. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Um, and because Ellie is the cure and Tess is, you know, saying, I don't ask you for anything. Like I've never asked you for anything. I didn't ask you to feel the way I felt. And I was like, oh, wow. That, why did that hit me? And, um, and you know, she said, save who you can save. And we get that heartbreaking kind of stare between her and Joel just silence yeah. before he grabs Ellie and like drags her out. Yeah. That, that drag kind of got me. I was sorry to see Tess go so quickly. Obviously mm-hmm. I knew that was going to happen because the video game, but I was kind of hoping they'd wait because it wasn't that emotionally impactful. It's what I was talking about earlier. We don't really have a connection to Joel. I did love how he just grabbed Ellie and ran off that there was something there in that physical performance that I thought was awesome from Pascal. But, you know, just because he really didn't hesitate when he made a decision, which is a character trait we're going to come back to with Joel. But the one thing that took me out was Ellie screaming to not leave Tess because Ellie doesn't know Tess. And I thought that was a really weird, like, trait to give Ellie because she isn't shown to be necessarily sympathetic to other people's issues and definitely not, like, having that much empathy or at least we're not shown that uh, she is just a kid going through this, doesn't know how to, like, exist as in this like captivity space she's in where like everybody is like taking her and doing what they want like with her because she is the cure almost like she's an object so i wish this episode was longer and we got more moments between the three of them that would have hit harder and then shown maybe some kind of like character growth with all three of them and maybe some kind of connection or not like a laughter moment but just something showing no, that they, yeah. that test and elliot the very least there was some kind of quality there that we could have lashed onto to really care when Tess dies outside of like the, you know, rock that Joel is, and we can't really get anything from him. When Ellie screams out, I just thought that was a weird writing choice. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I read it was just that Ellie hasn't had much connection with people. And yeah. uh, so that was someone that she, she was talking to on the highway. And yeah. uh, she she was just, you know, talking about how like she she's like, an took orphan. a risk to go to like the mall and they were having that banter. I, I think yeah, was she bonding. was like, oh yeah, I have someone in my life who's here and and so i don't know if it was like i i really care about tess like that scream i do get what you're saying though i think there were opportunities maybe instead of tess climbing through the debris like it could have been joel and then tess and ellie have a moment where you know where ellie is asking her about her life and tess gets to maybe tell her something that happened before the outbreak in 2003 like maybe that could have had so, more emotional stakes. Something I learned in the prep is that HBO actually changed the episode lengths. So the first episode was actually supposed to end as soon as the 20 year jump happens, which is what I brought oh, up in last episode, which okay. is I wish episode one ended when Sarah dies mm-hmm. and it drops the, you know, the last of us title card. And then it goes into the 20 years later and then the episode stops. And then episode two was originally going to be the last 30 minutes of episode one with episode two. So it was supposed to be, a, the, the length of episode one was supposed to be episode two. Interesting. And we okay. would have probably cared a little bit more because we just met Tess right. and then she dies at the end. So that's two episodes in a row where we meet a character at the beginning and then they die at the end. That's yeah. what was originally planned. But apparently they thought we have to show Ellie in, in the, the first, first episode. episode. I mean, that makes sense too. Yeah, yeah. But there is something off about the feeling of episode two because of how sudden Tess 
dies. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to watch it from the perspective of never playing the game. Gotcha. That's how I'm trying to look at it. And I'm yeah, assuming that's we'll, kind of how you We'll feel. talk about it in, in a second here, I think. Um, okay. In our extra credits. But so Tess ultimately, right, blows the house um, up at, while the infected are there. In a weird moment Ellie where and Joel. one of the infected people like put their, her, yeah, their I didn't know if that fungus was because in her mouth. It she was already was infected. So like the actual fungi in her body was like drawn to it. I don't know. Do you think that's what it was? I thought I she was know. just staying there. <laughs> I thought she was just trying to get the lighter to work and it, it couldn't work until the thing was already like in her well mouth. yeah i guess maybe like they would have attacked her yeah i just thought it was a weird image well i just yeah <laughs> I, I thought like, it was a very strange is, image too but yeah. i thought like maybe the infected was like oh one of me yeah that's what i thought yeah was it trying to like connect okay okay that's what i, I thought yeah all right interesting yeah. yeah okay let's go ahead and get to our extra credits for this episode do you want to explain for new listeners what an extra credit is sure in our extra credits we each choose what element of the episode deserves more recognition our extra credit can be anything that amplifies the story's message and to make it more interesting we always choose only one extra credit so anything we want to add about the show can be in response to our extra credits kelsey you want to go first yes i'll go first um so mine is tess's performance or you know anna torv's performance as tess at Mm -hmm. the end of the episode because like we were talking about before this um we didn't really develop a huge relationship with tess and it was the performance ultimately that got me still in the end where i was like oh you know i didn't actively love tess's character throughout these first two episodes but i think i'm going to miss her presence in the show yeah and it's obviously a sad scene where tess gets infected but the second time watching the episode i also realized that tess knew that she was bit when we first leave the museum. Yeah, when she gets out of the window. Yeah, and when Ellie walks away uh, while, you know, Tess and, and Joel are wrapping Tess's ankle, uh, Joel says something like, what if Ellie gets infected from the second bite? And Tess reacts with, why can't you just take the good news? Right. Like, maybe if you did that for once, we could win. And it was her recognizing that she's probably going to die and like sort of becoming hopeful towards death. And then that, that scene after he leaves, she just ultimately puts her head down knowing mm-hmm. that she's not going to be able to do anything. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting on, on the rewatch, but when she's telling Joel, you know, I've never asked you for anything and I didn't ask you to feel the way I did. I was like, Oh wow. Uh, just by her face. I was like, Tess probably, you know, was living with an emotionally unavailable person for a while here and probably had to attach herself to someone to survive, even though she seems pretty like ruthless herself. We we knew that because when Joel came home and got drunk and falls asleep, Tess comes home, I think, and then like hugs him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or like kind of sleeps in bed with him, but in a more like warm way. But when he gets up, I think he's like immediately like off the bed. Yeah. (laughs) So I think, yeah, he is emotionally unavailable. Yeah. Yeah. So I I guess just from her performance and some of the writing, I was like, Oh, Tess probably had a sad life, you know? And Anna Torb's performance made me just feel something at the end there. So that's my extra credit. RIP Tess. Yeah. It's a tough, tough arc for for Tess. Um, That kind of fits with mine too. I like her performance, but also the character of Tess and how she informs who Joel will be moving forward. So I want to give extra credit to Joel growing. We joked on the uh, the video game podcast that Joel doesn't vote, and <laughs> and now he is finding his humanity again in the show. So I'm here for it. He's kind of isolated himself over these past 20 years since Sarah, which obviously is completely understandable. And when he loses Tess, it seems like he's learning how to find connection again by running to take care of Ellie and get her out of the state house. And I believe you said it earlier, but Tess tells him like save who you can. Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful for someone like Joel, who just it takes orders and he takes instructions very well. It seems like from people he respects <laughs> and for that to be like the final order from the only person he cares about in the world yeah. besides his brother is pretty great for his character. So I like the quick change of character because from the beginning of the episode, Joel is really ready to get rid of Ellie. And he says that she's going to die sooner or later and that they can't lie to themselves. She doesn't have any life in front of her. Yeah. He's so obviously become detached and apathetic to those around him. And Tess's final words to, to him give him purpose, which is to like take care of Ellie. So Joel is growing. And I think that in the game and in the show, a through line for his character is that the worst parts of himself as he opens himself to others start going away. Mm-hmm. And that's just like uncomplicatedly good character writing. So I'm always happy to see... Uh, a very silent, sad man. Talk, talk a little bit. <laughs> Open up. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think at the beginning, you know, his actions change from what he said, uh, you know, about 
her not having a life in front of her to then him acting his Mm -hmm. actions are in line with like he does she does have a life in front of her and he actually is going to care about her as a person which even though Tess wasn't again like I said at the beginning of the episode super upfront about that she still was like I'm cool with getting a car battery there were pieces of her character throughout this whole episode that were subtly saying like I don't want to see her die Mm -hmm. she's not only immune, but she's like a, a person. A person, a kid too, yeah. most importantly. So let's get to our extra, extra credits because I want to ask you, Tess was kind of playing the mama role in this yeah. for Ellie. Do you think that I just that thought Joel... of Austin Butler when you said Mama. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> Do you think Joel is going to play the papa role? <laughs> or no? <laughs> um. Can we say something about Austin Butler? I don't like how people are um, kind of like trying to stick up for him right now on Twitter. Like that we're not going to be... Speaking of 2003. We're not going to be like bashing anybody on this podcast unless your name is Jake Sully. But like if if we are going to bash somebody, it's going to be that corny ass dude from Disney Channel, like with the Elvis voice, like the there do, have you seen this on social media there was like this kind of like there no. was a criticism of like the voice it was like this is weird it but feels then there was a very exploitative a sub movement and then there is like this counterculture <laughs> to the culture counterculture movement that is like no 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 we should be sticking up for him he's got a voice problem now like <laughs> okay. this is how his voice is guys stop it that's all i gotta say um okay yeah we is also Joel, grew is Joel- we also grew up with Austin Butler. That's so, what I mean. Like yeah. on Disney Channel. I know how that guy speaks is all I'm saying. I'm 28 yeah. years old. Okay. Yeah. I was there. I, and by the way, everyone on Twitter keeps calling him a kid. Isn't he older than us? I don't know. Austin how old Butler's is he? He's got to be in his age. 30s. I remember looking this up. What was your original question? Uh, is Joel going to be like Papa now? Is he going to be like a dad character? Okay, Austin Butler is 31. I knew it. Yeah. See this dude. So, all right. Um, yeah, maybe we should just, you know, change our voice tomorrow. Uh, see how it goes over. Okay, so... <laughs> I think that yes, that okay. You think he's gonna uh, be Joel dad? is gonna be Papa. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's um, gonna be something we come back to in all future episodes. But so yeah, I do think so. Um, just I guess like I'm already uh, like impacted probably by like the social media, you know, what's out there already, and also just what it seems like if I were watching this totally going in without knowing anything that this is where the arc is going. The relationship is between Joel and Ellie. That's what this whole, all the sequences have been building to. Okay. Well, I think we're going to like episode three a lot, mostly because I know it happens already. And I've heard that it is the best episode of the screeners okay. of the first four. So that's fantastic. Okay. Another question. Do you wish you had more internal logic in the show? Like how the quarantine zone or QZ works or the fireflies and Fedra's uh, like division and how they operate? Because I found myself in the game and in the show wanting to know more about these groups and the smuggler or underground market dealings and stuff like that. Do you want to know more about those things? Yeah, I I think I found myself wanting to spend a little bit more time in the QZ, which honestly I didn't know meant quarantine zone and I feel like a total idiot. No, no, no. You're not an idiot. I seriously was like, queasy? Like I, I kept in the video game. I was like, what are they saying? And then I turned the subtitles on. And I was like, oh my it's God. It's like when you read a book and you pronounce a character's name for like in your head for the longest time. And then yeah. you hear it on screen. Yeah. Hermione. Her, her, how do people say Hermione? I don't know. Hermione? Her, I don't know. Hermione. Okay. Hermione. Is, is that, that Hermione? How people, I think you're I don't right. Know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, in the last episode, when we are dropped into 2023, we're in the story, right? Where the characters already have enemies and people have sort of settled in this like Fedra controlled city in Boston. And Mm -hmm. I would have liked to spend more time there in the sets where people are selling, like I said last time, the shoelaces for like a card. And I was like, what's a card? Like, is that for food? (laughs) Now I'll never know. But I think it is for food. Yeah. Okay. But I also do think that similar to The Walking Dead or just like these dystopian stories, again, that I, I am talking about that I love. Yeah. I like when characters run into other groups ultimately. So yes. I think like if I were actually given the choice, I, I do understand the choice to break out of the, the QZ and, and go outside to meet other people because right. then that's where we're getting these interesting kind of social questions, these tribalism questions. So and maybe it's better anyways. The whole challenging part of doing a dystopian story is the fact that whatever is tearing down society is actually not more threatening than the actual human beings who lived yeah. in it before. So yeah. that is going to be the most interesting parts of the show. And I can confirm that the heights of this show will not happen until halfway through the season. Okay. So like for me, the best part of the game is like the midpoint. 
Interesting. So, I mean, I don't know if everybody shares that. I know the guys, you know, James and Adam, who I talked about on our video game pod did not agree, I think. But I thought the best part <laughs> was halfway through. Uh, some things I want to give extra credit to are the sets and environment. I've been talking about a lot. But just like that opening shot of Bella Ramsey, like looking up into the ceiling in the mm-hmm. salon and all the kind of like life, ironically, that's growing around her while all these humans are dying. It, and I just, I do think even though the love thing is cheesy and I don't know if I intellectually agree with everything that's being s- said by the creators um, about like how love is at the heart of like racism. Like I, I understand what they're saying, but that's just a weird concept. Yeah. But I do like how in this like chaos, this thing that is destroying the planet it might actually be saving the planet because it's killing off the only things that were endangering the future of Earth, which are humans. Yeah. And I think that's a cool concept. And I do like seeing that image. Um, and everything's just really well crafted in this. So I, I love the sets. I love the environment they're setting. Yeah. And last pod, you said it's a huge budget too, right? So yeah, it's Game of Thrones level. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that too. Highways. There were a few moments where like she was walking across the wooden bridge. Um, and it really, I saw that green screen in the back, but Ultimately, like yeah. I'm here for it. I love the the different colorful like uh, sets uh, with especially with the fungi growing. So okay, cool. let's talk about some predictions for episode three. Okay, because this is supposed to be the I'm biggest the only episode, one who can do it. the best one of the screeners that we've gotten so far. Uh, what do you think? Okay, so I think we have to run into people into episode three. Yes, and I really tried not to watch any trailers for this, um, but my instant algorithm, you know, just like showed up with an actor's face uh, mm-hmm. with a last of us title card on this. And I had no idea that this person was in it, but I'm guessing we'll see him next episode. And yeah. uh, I also think Tommy is going to come into this show at some point. I don't think next episode, okay. but I think that Joel will ultimately protect Ellie. I know that's a weak prediction, <laughs> but that's not, we, that's actually what well, we don't know anything about Joel being a protector at this point. So I don't think it's that bad of a prediction. I don't know. I think the save who you can is like a kind of thesis for the rest of the, yeah. the season. At least that's what I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think we're also going to get to Tommy at some point, mm-hmm. obviously our guys in Wyoming, he's a firefly. Uh, we know that him and Joel maybe like had it out back in Boston. Sure. Uh, so I, we're definitely going to meet him, but again, I don't know about next episode. They also said, I think on the, the air on the radio in the first episode that there were like slave traders and shit like yeah. that, like in the Midwest. Yeah. I was like, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember him saying that about like what's out there. Like, yeah. don't go. Yeah. Uh, and then also I feel like we have to get some sort of uh, for my walking dead people out there, some sort of Negan type character mm-hmm. or like the mayor, you know, where we have this whole town set up like in the walking dead and Man, the first four or five seasons of the walking dead, oh, like actually yeah. iconic. I almost feel like walking dead has become underrated because the last like five seasons have been so awful. Apparently I didn't, I stopped watching after a certain point. Most fans Same. know that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, the Negan thing, the mayor thing, you do need that kind of foil to whoever the protagonist is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a good prediction. Yeah, I mean, we only have two seasons. I feel like we have to have some sort of villain. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But right now, I'm thinking, you know, we get Ellie to the medical base uh, out west long term. I think yeah. that's like the end point of season one. And then who knows? Maybe Joel's a firefly in season two. Okay. <laughs> uh, so these are these are my predictions. <laughs> okay, these are great predictions. Um, I'm not going to say anything per usual in these <laughs> predictions for these episodes. Guys, if you like what you hear, go ahead and follow the podcast. We're going to have an episode out for The Last of Us every week at Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern. That is when we're allowed to drop these. And I'm really excited for the rest of the season. I'm excited to see what the show is going to give us. I liked episode two. I loved episode one. And I'm really excited for episode three. Me too. Really All right. excited. That was the extra credits of The Last of Us, episode two, Infected. This has been Trey. This is Kelsey. Peace. Bye. I'm taking a ride.